0: going to start in Romans chapter 12. I'm going to look just at one verse. So, so great to be here and to share in the Word, but what I love most about Wednesdays is the most important thing we get to do is come to the table as a family. Because even if the person speaking just totally messes everything up. We still get to come to the table and it's all about Jesus. So it's with that that I want to, we're going to start a series on hospitality and what it means to be a hospitable people because as a church we're committed to being the most hospitable people in town. So hopefully I'll convince the rest of you (laughs) to join with us on that mission and journey. (laughs) But to be the most hospitable people in town, you need to know what that means. Because right now, Chick-fil-A is winning. (laughs) Romans 12, verse 13. I'm going to read in the New Living. When God's people are in need, be ready... To help them, always be eager to practice hospitality. King James kind of softens that a little bit and just says, be given to hospitality. Because that phraseology isn't incredibly specific, we can kind of wiggle our way out of what that means. Be given to hospitality. So I like the way the New Living says, always. Be eager to practice hospitality. Meaning you're probably not that talented at it. You need practice. Now there are exceptions. There are some people who are gifted with hospitality. That's actually a gift. It's a grace gift. This gifting of of invitation and hospitable uh, living and hospitable being. And I can say with the absolute certainty I am not gifted that way. As a trained, a trained and experienced introvert, I'm incredibly talented at creating space between us and staying safely in my bubble, and it's taken a lot of spiritual formation to get out of that. I've got friends. Hannah and I have friends who live in Colorado. They're from Norway, and um, uh, they are just absolutely incredible at hospitality Uh, they like their whole house is IKEA. That's the first sign. Like like, you know you go to IKEA and you go like marching around their maze of you know seduction and just completely lost in chairs and curtains and and you see like those rooms set up and like they're so perfectly set up and you think, wow, that is incredible. I want that. And then it arrives in like four tiny little boxes. With a genderless figure saying, thumbs up, you can do this. Okay, but like their house actually looks like the Ikea showroom. It's perfect. And like you just walk in and think you're in sacred space. But not that Ikea is sacred space, but this one time I was over at their house and we're having a conversation and they had someone coming over for dinner and I was there with one of my kids. I'm like, all right, let's go. It's time we want to give them space. I'm like, oh no, stop. We'll have dinner. Like, listen, you didn't prepare for me. Like I can eat. So you didn't prepare for me. That's, that's totally okay. Like, oh no, it's totally fine. And the meal was meats and cheeses. Now, when I think of meats and cheeses, I think of those Walmart packets that you like peel off and it's like there's meat and there's cheese. And she put out this incredible, I mean, it was, I mean, there's like eight kinds of cheese. I didn't know there was eight kinds of cheeses. And like all these different cured meats from all these different places. And it's like something's wrong with someone that knows how to do this. This is, this is incredible. Turns out they ended up buying a coffee shop, turned it into a cafe. It's wonderful. They're incredible people. They have the gift of hospitality. And if I put myself in comparison to them, there is no hope for me. (laughs) That ain't happening. I ain't that good. So there's something beyond just like the gift of hospitality because this is in a section of your Bible that is about like everyday Christian living. Like Romans 12, like Paul has been building up this huge argument, all leading towards this Romans 12 that he's saying, Listen, there's a way the world thinks. Don't be like that. There's a way to be followers of Jesus in transformation and being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that brings with it certain giftings, of which there's graces, grace gifts. And then goes into saying, and if you live this kind of transformed life, this is what your life's going to look like. From verses, I think it's like eight or nine, where he says, let your love be genuine. And then from that just goes on and on about these different facets, as if this was just everyday living, like not taking revenge. The only condoned competition in Christian living is how well we can outdo one another in showing honor. And one of those features of the Christian life is a continual posture of eagerness to practice hospitality. Always being eager means you have a posture towards living towards everyone you come encounter with that is posture towards hospitality. And that's just, the, that, like, that's just what it means to be a Christian. And I would say the church has just flat out been miserable at this. Because if you think about your church experience, is hospitable the first adjective you think of when thinking about how you've encountered church? And if you've just only been at this church, don't answer that. Because <laughs> you'd say it's hospitable. That's what I believe you'd say. <laughs> Chances are that's not what you would say about church. You might say a lot of positive things, but it's probably not hospitable. It's one of those places. You would be far more likely to talk about hotels and restaurants being hospitable or not hospitable than a church. Hospitality, just even, you just look up the definition, it, it just means a readiness or a, a treatment of guests, a friendliness of accommodation, for guests, and for strangers, and so that's just, it's just, it's like accommodation, friendly, it's kind of hard to pinpoint. Um, and hospitality has with it certain actions or attitudes that you would think of when you think of someone being hospitable. Like, it really is super, I'm serious, I'm annoyed at Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A, so when I say I'm annoyed, it's because I envy them. Um, I can eat Chick-fil-A anytime whatsoever. But, how they get a bunch of 17-year-olds who normally just hate everybody, <laughs> and just like I test them, I say thank you as many times as humanly possible, just to see will they do it every time. They're about 95, 96 percent, so it's not a hundred. And I'm gonna I'm gonna write their manager and let them know. <laughs> I mean, like 96 times out of a hundred, you get these. Teenagers who are making minimum wage and yet they're just, they're trained at it. My pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. So I'm like, I'm not going to let you guys steal the thunder. So I just started saying my pleasure to every time someone says thank you. And I'm going to be better than you. I'm going to every single time someone says thank you. My pleasure, my pleasure. You can't say my pleasure and be mean. You got to smile when you say my pleasure. And again, like you got these like 16, 17 year old kids who like normally just look like life is just horrid. They show up to work, and at least they smile for their shift, you know? My pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. And so, like, I get weird looks. Like, you work at Chick-fil-A? I said, no, I'm better than that. So, the church being the most hospitable people in town, you at least got to do better than saying my pleasure every time someone says thank you. So what is it? And I want, to, I want us to think about hospitality not necessarily just in words or actions and attitude. Those contribute, though, I want you to think of it in the context of environment, space. A space that is created. And what kind of hospitality are Christians called to be always eager to practice? What kind of hospitality is uniquely Christian that's not... You know, and you think of like Ritz-Carlton hospitality or Chick-fil-A hospitality. What is uniquely Christian hospitality? Does it include words and actions? Absolutely. But beyond a word or an action you, you get from people, it is the environment that is created around someone. It is a space. And what makes hospitality uniquely Christian is a space created for others to encounter Jesus. a space created. And again, like I, I am having to overcome introverted tendencies. And introverted tendencies means like physical proximity is important to me. And you know, like who's a hugger? Any like hugger? Okay. See, introverts, you know who to stay away from. It's like, you know, people that just like, they see you and they open up and the rest of us go, that stopped working a long time ago for me. I don't know. You, You know, people that you, you just know if I get in their space, I am welcome in and I'm not going to make it out alive. Like they're just gonna, they're just gonna pull me in. And then there's people, you know, like if I get in their space, it's like uh, the same size of magnets. Like you just, you get in their space and there's, there's an opposing reaction. You, like, I, um, so, so one of the things that COVID was really nice is it spaced everybody out at restaurants. And like, I'm not, I don't have to bump into people. I'm not like, you, people sit next to you and you, know, you can just kind of feel that like I'm creating a barrier between me and you that's honestly pointless, but it makes me feel better that there's this barrier. That is space. You know when you are welcome in that space and when you are not. And if you are as talented as me, you know how to keep people out of your space. Jesus is working on me. I feel like I've come a long way in my spiritual formation into Christ likeness. Okay. So I'm speaking I'm speaking with authority (laughs) about hospitality because I'm terrible at it. And it, like I get convicted when I read, always be eager to practice hospitality. I can say of all the things I'm always eager to do, practicing hospitality did not make the top 10. So if we are to always be eager to practice hospitality, the way I see that is that I'm eager to create a space that people can encounter Jesus I'm eager to create that in my personal space and I'm practicing a posture of a space created for people to encounter Jesus. That when they're in my space, however big my space is, I'm not talking about that, you know, 15-year-old social media site that didn't work, but when you're in my space, you encounter Jesus. Like that's what hospitality would be, is that I have a space created in my proximity that when you are in my space... You would, you would experience Jesus. And as a church, it is a collective space that we create amongst each other where people encounter Jesus. And I want to think of it on three levels. And this is not like an in-depth teaching. It's just to get you in a frame of mind to see this is what we're called to practice. Like an everyday normal Christian, not people who are signed up for the hospitality team. Like every single one of us in our everyday life are called to always be eager to practice hospitality. So we're to always be eager to create a space for people to encounter Jesus. And think of it at least on three levels is welcome, love, and grace. Welcome being the most obvious and the easiest because you know when you're not welcome. You know when you are intruding. Have you ever gone to someone's house? You, you hear the yells on the other side of the door. They open the door and there's a smile on their face. But you know you are intruding into something. You know when you are, well, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Some extroverts have no idea how inconvenient they can be. You know, generally the average person knows when they're an inconvenience. And there's people, though, that are just so gifted, you don't feel like you're inconveniencing them. Even though you know you are, they don't make you feel that way. What is that? You feel welcome. That means that when you're in my space, you're welcome to be there. Regardless of it being an inconvenience or not. Even when it is an inconvenience, you still feel welcome in that space. You don't feel like you're intruding. You feel like you're being included. Even if it's messy. I mean, we got five kids. So if we have you over at the house, we are under no pretense that everything is perfect and clean all the time. But do you feel welcome and included in that whole process of, of living? Or do you just feel like you can't touch anything? And when it comes to the church... Do people feel welcome? Not do they hear, hey, welcome to Victory Life Church. Because there's lots of times people hear the words welcome to church, but they don't feel any bit of it. Well, it means that in this space, you are welcome to be there. If you're going to encounter Jesus, you, you are not an inconvenience to him. You might even be intruding but immediately you will be included. It was the disciples that's like, hey, listen, you're coming in on sacred space here with Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, nah, let those children come. No, let those crazy people right inside. Bring them right, bring them right close to me. All those sick people, bring them in. Hospitality is a space created that is a welcoming space. It says you belong here. You're welcome here. You are not an intrusion. And I totally understand our apprehension to hospitality, not out of doctrinal basis, but out of abuses and excesses culturally. That if you just did a a Google search for the hospitality of Jesus... You're going to find, like on YouTube, you're going to find a couple good clips of here and there talking about Jesus' hospitality. You're also going to find a lot of videos that talk about basically everybody is welcome, which they, which would be a, not a bad thing to say, but would say also every, there is no sin. Like you, you, you are tolerated, you're excused for everything, And that sin doesn't matter, following Jesus doesn't matter, we're all just one big happy family, there's no standard, there's no holiness, there's no, and that's what the hospitality of Jesus looks like, it's just everybody being welcome means that there's nothing wrong. And so people who like feel like there should kind of be a line between sin and holiness get uncomfortable when you start talking about hospitality, because you would, you would, you might hear the abuses of it, the excesses of it, but being afraid of excesses, or distortions, or compromises in other churches is never a good excuse to be inhospitable. Amen. Amen. That's not okay. Just because other places have distorted the idea of hospitality. Into a anything goes kind of spiritual. I mean, I I don't even try to research stuff. And sometimes things I just show up. That this this guy who called himself a minister was asked a question about polyamorous relationships, uh, any amount of relationships with anybody, regardless of like gender. Like multiple relationships and multiple relationships that are same-sex or opposite-sex. Rela- and he called them holy. That is a distortion. Right? Another pastor calling Jesus a racist. And that was confronted with his racism and he had to repent. All under the banner of like hospitality. So I understand that we get uncomfortable when there are distortions and compromises. And yet just because there's a distortion or a compromise does not mean that truth doesn't exist. And that standing for truth sometimes puts you in the crosshairs of both sides. And so you might think, well, you know, listen, if, if we are truly hospitable, then does that mean we excuse sin? Thank you, dear Lord. I appreciate that. Here's the way I would say it. Same point. Christian hospitality is creating a space for people to encounter Jesus, not for them to encounter our doctrine first, not for them to encounter morality first. Not for them to encounter standards or holiness first. Jesus. Just, a, just a, little, a few stories that if you were to just look through these stories. Luke chapter 5. Jesus cleanses a leper. That's a do not touch group. Unless you want leprosy. And everybody is inhospitable to lepers. Why? Well, first of it was like ritual cleanliness. Like you're not allowed in the temple you get in proximity to a leper. And then there's just the whole health aspect of that too. And what does Jesus do? Totally violates it. Crosses the line. Welcomes the leper into his space. And what happens When the leper encounters Jesus, Jesus doesn't get leprosy, the leper gets healed. Luke chapter seven, you have this incredibly awkward story. Just read it slowly and just feel how awkward it is. Where a Pharisee, Host Jesus, and Jesus is like, Psh, I like food. Yeah, I'll go to your house. And a woman of the city, prostitute, somehow finds her way into the party and is making a scene of, oh man, just the social awkwardness. She is weeping, uncontrollably at Jesus' feet the entire night, like making a scene. And Simon, the Pharisee, judged her in his heart. And Jesus is like, Simon, hey, I got something to tell you. And just the total setup. The Pharisee, say it, teacher. Be careful when you tell Jesus to say it. It's like, you know, there's this guy. Actually, there was two. One dude owed 500 denarii, which is like, you know, like two years worth of a salary. Another guy owed 50. They couldn't pay it. The guy said, you know what? I forgive both. Who do you think would love him more? Total setup. I love Jesus' setups. Pharisee walked right into it. He's like, well, I guess the guy that... That, you know, owed more. And, and it, you got, you got to read these things slowly. It says, And Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon. Yeah. Yeah. He looks the awkwardness right in the face and is totally comfortable talking to the judger. Yeah. Looks at her and says, Simon, when I came in, you didn't bother to wash my face or wash my feet. And yet this poor woman has washed my feet with her tears. You didn't even give me a customary kiss. And she has done nothing but kiss my feet. And he sa- and this, this is what he says. And he says, though her sins and they are many. So Jesus did not condone sin. He called sin what it was. But he did not value the woman based on her sin. Simon assigned value to his sense of sinfulness and sinlessness. Jesus saw the value in the woman beyond the sin. Called sin what it was. Though her sins and they are many, she, they are forgiven and so she loves more than you. She's better at it than you. And so Jesus is not incredibly concerned about sin's ability to contaminate. He's far more concerned with his healing contaminating the sinner. john chapter 8 you have a woman caught in adultery jesus total setup i can't slow down and tell all these stories you just got to read them and this is enjoyable like if you're bored at the gospels you're not reading them woman caught in adultery and just the scene is beautiful he's 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 potentially writing jeremiah seventeen three that those who walk away from god from the fountain of living water their names are written in the dust he's writing potentially their names in the dust jesus the law commands us to stone her the fact that the dude is conspicuously not there says it's a setup and john 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 is actually called the whispering gospel do you know why because there's more parenthetical statements that john makes than any other gospel so basically john is telling you this story and he's like it's a trap It's also in Matthew, I think it's twenty-five or twenty-four, when when they're going through like the signs of the times and like the destruction of the temple and all that, and and Matthew and Mark both go, let the reader understand. Like they're basically like, hey, you're an idiot, you have no idea what's going on, so pay attention. That's not—I don't know if that's exactly what they're saying, but that's what I think. So, you know, John pulls his best Star Wars out and it's like, listen, it's a trap. It's a trap. And Jesus is like, okay. So? Whoever's without sin, you cast the first stone. And it makes this interesting observation from the oldest to the youngest. Like I guess the older you are, you should be recognizing how messed up you really are. And they all left and Jesus goes, huh, how about that? Where'd they go? And the woman's like, I don't know, they're gone. And he says, listen, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Called sin what it was, but did not value her based on sin or the lack thereof. Luke chapter 19, Jesus goes right to a tax collector. He invites himself to dinner. I want to be so spirit filled that I go to wealthy people and go like, "Listen, I'm going to your house today." Yeah. I don't think I'm that spirit filled yet, but and the, Jesus is just having dinner. And just the presence of Jesus is so convicting to Zacchaeus that he's like, oh, I just cannot take it anymore. Listen, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll give away half of my money to the poor. You know what? If they call me on it, I'll give them four times what I cheated them out of. And Jesus is like, dude, I was just needing the salt, okay? But you know what? I'll take repentance as well. And he's like, this is why I came to seek and to save that which was lost. See, the presence of Jesus is far more powerful than sin's presence. That's why Christian hospitality welcomes the sinner. Because if we actually, if we actually are confident in the presence of Jesus we are confident that Jesus' presence in our space doesn't just welcome the sinner, but that love can cover the multitude of sin. That the sinner just being present would go, whoa, okay, yeah, you're right, like I've been living wrong. Christian hospitality does not mean you condone or excuse sin. You just spend way more energy and attention elevating Jesus. Let Jesus do the convicting. You can't be afraid of the church going soft on sin just because it's hospitable. When we're not hospitable, it says you lack the confidence in Jesus' presence. You lack the confidence in our ability to facilitate his presence. It means, or at least it implies, that you think sin's power to contaminate people is greater than Jesus' power to forgive and to heal people. That's what it says when we're not hospitable. And so what makes Christian hospitality unique is the ability to welcome and love sinners and never excuse or condone the sin. How has it worked for you when you've harped on sin? It also sends the message that you are above sin. You're above sin and you're afraid of it taking you. You got to realize, listen, it's all over you. Jesus has made you new. Jesus has forgiven you. And we are really good at being idiots. And get right back up into the mess. And Jesus lovingly washes us and cleanses us. You are holy and all of that unholy living, Jesus is able to just work it out as you are in his presence. And so being uniquely hospitable means that we welcome people into the space to encounter Jesus, not religion, not legalism. Jesus and the presence of Jesus. Values people where they are, not how we think they should be. Being hospitable means that we actually love people the way Jesus loved people. We love people according to God's goodness, not according to their performance. How did he love you? Because as far as I know, he loved me when I was really messed up. And he did not love me based on where he thinks I should be. He's loved me right where I'm at and loves me enough to transform me into the person he's called me to be. And if he's done that for you, why would we not do that for others? When we say we love people where they are, it doesn't mean you condone anything. It just means that they're worth loving where they are. That that person was, you, we, got, we got to start seeing the, the value of people is not based on what we think it should be. It's not based on what even they think it should be. The value of a human being is based on what God was willing to pay for them. And that's the blood of Jesus. Oh. Oh. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God showed, he proved how much he loved us, that while we were messing this whole thing up, while we could do no good, while we could only mess up, he paid the ultimate price for us. That's how valuable you are. And your value isn't based on your performance or the lack thereof. It's not based on your sin level, high or low. It's based on the character of God, the goodness of God. Romans chapter two, no, Romans Two verse four, Romans two three, Romans two so, Romans two four, it says that it's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. Yeah. It's not preaching the flames of hell that lead men to repentance. <laughs> if I could say it this way, I don't think it's that valuable to scare the hell out of people. Because usually, if you use a fear tactic to manipulate behavior, the enemy can find something they are more afraid of to manipulate their behavior back. So let's not go the demonic way. Let's go the Christ-like way. Love people according to God's goodness. I talked about this weekend, that like we're really terrible at being good. We need Jesus. And because you need Jesus... Every other sinner out there needs Jesus too. And so when we're welcoming people, they're encountering the love of God and it's the love of God that leads men to repentance. There's no compromising in God's love. It's truth. It's absolute. It's also not based on your performance. So one more place in scripture that I think really testifies of the hospitality of Jesus. The parable he gives in the prodigal son. And this would... I debated on just doing the entire message based on the story, but there was too many other good stories, so when I'm, uh, when I'm with you on a Wednesday, I feel the need to just machine gun it all at you <laughs> instead of just, you know, patiently going to one story, but you just, you, just, you just have to slow down on these stories and see all that's there. There's far more here than even, even one sermon could explore, but the story of... You know, a young idiot son thinking that because his dad is strong and robust, he's never going to get his inheritance, so he asks for it. Remarkably, the father gives it. He goes away, squanders it all, comes to his senses when he's stuck in the the pigsty, longing to eat the food that is given to pigs. He forgets who he is. He says, you know what? I'm not worthy to be a son, so I'll come to the father and ask to be treated as a slave. You know, writes the script in his head, makes it to his father, and he goes through a spiel. I'm not worthy to be your son. Please treat me as a hired servant. And the father would just have none of it. There's a painting um, by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son, and it's just worth Meditating and praying and and seeing all that's here in this little story. And seeing our own lives take shape. That all we could really do is live a life of wear and tear. Our best efforts brought our life to the ditch. And assume the identity of a slave is the best we can do. And the father, it says, he embraced him. He created a space of welcome and love. To experience a grace that cannot be experienced without the embrace. The embrace is not one of control. The father didn't lock up and not let him go. He gave him the freedom. Um, I'm remembering this off the top of my head, if I can remember it. There's a line in uh, one of the songs that uh, Roll Away the Stone by Mumford and Sons. And he says, Let's see if I can remember this. It's not the long walk home that'll change this heart, but the welcome I receive at the restart. That it's the embrace of the father. Hospitality. Creating a space of welcome and love. Even in the middle of his smelliness. Think about it. Where he left was the pigsty. And as much as I know about pigs, which is not a lot outside of eating bacon. They stank. And they, their stank Sticks. And what does the father do? Embraces him, stinking all. Kissed him. Reminded him of who he is. He's not a slave, he's a son. And throws a party for him. But there's another character, the older brother, who comes from the field and sees all this party and says, What in the world is going on? Gets told, hey, your brother has come home. And the dude was indignant. And it says this. He refused to go in. He was welcome. But he refused to go in out of self-righteous anger. And the father caught up in the life of the party, loved both sons. And just as he went out to embrace his younger son, he goes out to entreat his older son. And the first word out of his mouth was, son. See, the the self-righteous older brother says, what are you doing? This son of yours... Goes and squanders all that wealth on prostitutes. You throw a party for him. And if you listen to his language, it's slave language. I have done everything you asked, Slaved over your, your instructions. And you didn't do so much as, you know, kill a goat, much less a fatted calf for me. And the first word out of the father's mouth was son. You don't know who you are. And he says, you are always with me. You were with me and yet still maintained a slave identity. You're with me and all that I have is yours. It was right. He says, it was right. It was right that I threw a party. The wealth is dead, but the relationship can be saved. All the money I sent with him, that's gone. There's no getting that back. But I can get my son back. It was right. He was dead, but he's alive to us. And Jesus intentionally leaves the story hanging. There's no resolve to the story. Why? Because it leaves us to contemplate, who are we? Have we forgotten the times where we were the younger brother and just ruined everything? We tried to cover it up. We tried to put a facade of awesomeness. But we just needed the embrace of the father. But you enjoy that so long that you forget that you're in the presence of a compassionate and loving father and you start thinking that you deserve this. That you earned this. You take his presence for granted. You take what you have been given for granted and think that you deserve it. You earn it. And who are these other sinners to get to enjoy what we've worked so hard to earn? And most churches are the self-righteous older brother. You've forgotten who you are. We forgot how we deserve none of this. How we could earn none of it. And now who are these sinners to come and ruin our good church? All of us are quite capable of becoming the older brother. All of us. All of us are capable of forgetting what Christ has done for us. All of us are capable of thinking, you're just awesome. And you're so good and you're so holy. It's been so long since I've sinned. And now all these sinners are getting all the same treatment as those of us who've earned our way here. And we stop nurturing the space for people to encounter Christ because it's for me. It's sad the amount of churches that think church is for them. None of this is for you. This is all for Jesus. Everybody's got their opinion about how things should be, what music should be played and what music shouldn't, what good music is and what good music isn't. And I don't know if you know this. You're never going to get your way all the way. None of us do. If you got everything your way, everyone in the church would be just like you. When the most important thing about who we are is that we are not just like everybody else. And churches sometimes spend so much time trying to just boundary everything off because we have it perfect. And it's only perfect in the eyes of the self-righteous complainers. Yeah. Goddamn. Goddamn. <laughs> it's okay to say everyone's fine. You know, hey, are we ever going to do the, that other, those other songs ever again? <laughs> I, I get it oh man, you know the sound if it just wasn't that way you know or you know if if that one speaker that I like so much could just speak more frequently I really connect with Jesus through that one speaker You, you are dangerously close of becoming the older brother But what Christian hospitality does is it creates the space to encounter Jesus for both the sinner and the self-righteous. Because both need Jesus. I I hope that I know Jesus enough that when I'm in the presence of a self-righteous religious person that I... I stay in Christ-like love because there's been plenty of times that I've been deceived and have been the self-righteous religious person complaining my way to get my way. And there've been people who lovingly said, stop it. You're being a self-righteous religious person. Christian hospitality is always eager to practice creating a space for people to encounter Jesus. And we're not perfect at that. You're going to have your good days and bad days. You're going to have your times where you just rock it. I mean, you know, that one life group that you got to host and you were just on point Holy Spirit hospitality the whole way. And then there's going to be the next life group meeting where you had a terrible day and you're really selfish and you're fighting with all your closest friendships and then you have to pretend your way all the way through the life group. (laughs) And this is why we need grace. (laughs) We need God's power his strength and our weakness. And you don't just get to offload hospitality on the especially gifted people or just the people who sign up for the hospitality team because they're particularly friendly. And the rest of us, we just offload all that onto them. And this isn't you know, major feats of strength. This is things like, if you are able-bodied, park away from the building. Leave the good spots for the sinners. Christian hospitality. Leave the best seats in this house for the self-righteous religious person. Scoot to the middle. Nobody enjoys doing that. It means when someone is looking like this with a kid that's you know, yanking them and they're trying to find their way, saying, Hey, are you looking for the kids' check in? Can I show you where that is? Can I take you there? Hospitality isn't point, it's that way. It's creating a space of welcome and love. That's what I'm talking about, like these just giant, massive acts of hospitality. Start small, practice it. And there is no better place to be reminded about how much we need the grace of Jesus than at the table of the Lord. It's my favorite because it's not based on performance. Even if I, as a speaker, just like totally just ruin everything, we encounter Jesus at this table. It's my favorite to sit and watch everyone come through the line and see the rich and the poor to see the old and the young to see the weathered and the new to see the saints and the sinners to see every race every culture come to the one place of hospitality the body of the Lord broken for you The blood of Christ shed for you. And everybody gets looked in the eye and says, this is where everybody is the same in need of Jesus. The body of the Lord broken for you. Yes, for us, but for you. The blood of Christ shed for the remissions of your sin. Yeah, and those other people that you think are worse sinners than you, them too. But yours. The one place that epitomizes all of Christian hospitality is the place that Jesus gives his own life and says, you were worth it. You are welcome at my table. And you can experience my love. No, you don't deserve it. No, you couldn't earn it. And I gave it to you anyway. Yeah, you've done, you've done a whole lot to try to mess this up. And my blood was shed for you. To forgive your sins. Jesus' power to forgive is far greater than sin's power to contaminate. And at this table, we all hear it in your ears just for you.